started looking through the book of James. So we're going to hop back into it for the next two weeks before Mother's Day, and then we'll, uh, we'll uh, do some Mother's Day stuff, and then we'll finish out the book of James. But we are in the last chapter, chapter 5 of the book of James, um, and we've looked at a bunch of stuff, right? So let me give you a quick recap of the book to this point to put us in the right mindset, right? So... James starts out with some of the most quoted verses in Scripture, right? Um, um, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Later on, we read that if you ask for wisdom, God gives wisdom to you. And then God, no, excuse me, not God, but, well, God through James. James spends the next two to three chapters just throwing haymakers at Christians, proving how bad we actually are, right? That's the book of James. I've said it a long while ago. I'll say it again now. If you ever feel good about yourself, that you're doing awesome in this walk of Christian life, go read the book of James. You would no longer feel like you're doing awesome because James points out everything that we as humans just don't do. So that's where we pick up, right? That's where we pick up in chapter five. Now, we're only going to look at the first six verses of this because it's a very, um, very heavy six verses um, with stuff that is hard for us to hear because we want things to be one way and God doesn't often do things the way that we want him to do them. We think we're wiser than he is. One day maybe we'll learn that we're not. Let's read it. Uh, James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. It reads, Come now, you rich, and weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Number one on your note sheets, if you grabbed a bulletin, you've got a note sheet. Number one on your note sheets, on the surface. Let's look at the surface level of this, right? Because the word rich here applies to two different things. Let's talk about the first one. Literally, it applies to those with money. That's right. James is telling you that money is sin. Please send me your sin. I'll take care of it. I want to point this out from the jump. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that it says you should always be poor. You won't find that. It does say blessed are the poor. It does say that it's harder for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. But that's not because of the money itself. That's because of generally the heart of the person who has money, right? So this begins by literally talking about those who have money, and he says, woe to you. Woe to you because you've missed the point and you've dealt poorly with the people around you. You've dealt poorly with the people who are around you. I listed out a whole bunch of verses there on your note sheet to prove that the Bible talks a lot about money. And this is one of those areas that we don't like because you know what? How many times do you hear or have you thought to yourself, man, if I just had an extra thousand bucks, I could make it work. Boy, it must be nice to have money. You could do this, you could do that. Let me let you in on a nice little secret. I don't have money. I've never had money. But let me let you in on a secret of those with money. It's never enough. 
always want and need more. Some of you in here or listening might go, boy, if I won the lottery, I'd be set for life. I'm here to tell you, no, you would not because you'd blow it in about a month and you'd somehow have a jet and a new Maserati and a new house and a new this and a new that. And before you realize it, you've spent millions of dollars. We all like to think, like when people ask me, they're like, if you won the lottery, and I always stop them there and go, well, the lottery is gambling, gambling is a sin, so I would never win the lottery. But if you win the lottery, I expect your tithe check. If you won the lottery, or if you were given this money, right, you came into a massive inheritance, what would you do? And you know, well, of course, you gotta tithe off the top of it, right? Not, not what the government takes away. You gotta tithe off the whole thing, right? But you gotta tithe off of it, and then, you know, I'd give a little more to the church. I'd give extra to the church, because, you know, you know uh, I'd put a lot of it away into savings, because then you can, you can live off the savings the rest of your life, right? Uh, and then uh, I probably, I would, I would get myself my TV. I'd get the TV that I want, and I'd buy a PS5, and I'll get something nice for Maddie. Um, what would probably happen if somebody was like, here's a million dollars, you wouldn't see me in the next week, and then I'd be back just as with, with as little money as I have now. Because money doesn't fix problems. Money causes problems. Not because of money, but because of our heart towards money, right? And so James starts off here by, by warning against it, by warning against the heart of greed and of lust of money, of putting money before God of putting your riches before God and before others. You read a little later here that he talks about, um, right, in verse, um, uh, verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. He's saying you had employees and you didn't pay them correctly. Some of you might be sitting there going, amen, preach it, pastor, that sounds a lot like my employer. Probably right. Isn't it great the Bible says your reward's in heaven and not here? I'm expecting that wherever my mansion is, which is a mistranslation in the King James, but oh, oh well, um, wherever my mansion is, I've got a nice TV in there. Over there. Well, by then I'm hoping they've got like a thousand inch TV. It, if, I'm hoping by then that I'm, hey, listen, if I'm in heaven and the best TV they've got is 85 inch surround sound, I'm a little disappointed to be honest with you. God can make anything and that's the best he can do there? Come on. No. No, pause. Have you ever thought about when you get to heaven what your house is going to look like, what you would like it to be, right? So, so my mom, right, who's down the hallway right now with the kids, my mom's always like she wants a nice little lake house. Or not, no, sorry. She wants a nice house on a corner with a nice porch where she'll sit and eat chocolate chip cookies and drink lemonade with her best friend for all eternity. I'm like, that's pretty nice. My brother somehow wants to live underneath the ocean, which I had to tell him, Nathan, your perfected body does not mean you can breathe underwater. You're still human. We're not fish. But oh well, God can make him breathe underwater, so he wants there. My dad wants a nice lake house where none of you can find him. Not that he doesn't like any of you. He just doesn't like anybody. Me, I would love a nice house up in the woods on a mountain. Not so secluded that I've got a, you know, it's a 10-mile or a 10-day drive to get to somebody, but, you know, a nice little secluded house with a full wraparound porch. Not a three-quarters one, a full wraparound porch. And that wraparound porch has, like, two or three nice swings on it, 
and a nice little table where I can sit outside and eat my dinner. And inside, there's, uh, there's tons of Thomas Kincaid. I love Thomas Kincaid. Thomas Kincaid paintings and, and my nice TV. And the Eagles will somehow always be good. It would be amazing. I'll know I'm in heaven when that happens. Right, but have you ever thought about what your house in heaven's going to look like? I don't know. It will look far better than anything I could imagine because it's God, right? If you're ever wondering, here's the best answer you can give to somebody. Whenever somebody says, will this be in heaven? My dad's answer was always, if you need it to be happy, it'll be in heaven. And as a six-year-old, I was always like, yes. Here we go. I'm on my Game Boy. There'll be pizza. This is going to be awesome. And now as an adult, I'm like, you know what I need to be happy? Ice cream, amen. You know what I need to be happy? I need my Savior, and he'll be there, so I'll be happy in heaven. That sounds like a good sermon, but it's not the one for today. Let's keep going, right? So the point here is, on the surface, be wary of money, not because money in itself is evil, but because men do evil things for it and to keep it. We do horrible things for money, and so he says be wary. But here's the thing. This is an allegory as well for something far deeper. So number two on your note sheets there, a deeper meaning. And this is the more important meaning in the grand scheme of things. It applies and means the unbeliever. Woe to the unbeliever. We read in Revelation, right, Jesus himself says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Now that was 2,000 years ago. His quick needs to get some getty up in it, in my opinion, but he's the wise one here, so I'll let him do it, right? Woe to the unbeliever. Woe to the person who does not trust in God, who has not put their faith in God. You put your faith in things other than God. The men recently, in our men's Bible study, recently finished a study through uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And we looked at the different, uh, we call them kingdom heroes, but the different heroes of faith that are listed out in, in chapter 11, right? And one of the main takeaways uh, from one of the weeks that we studied it was, your faith is only as strong as the thing in which you put it. Okay, so let me explain that. If I put my faith that this um, bucket will hold me if I stand on it, my faith only lasts so long as this thing holds my 220 pounds. By the way, in case you were wondering, over the past three months, I lost one one-hundredth of a pound. I went to the doctor to do my diabetes checkup and stuff like that, and he walks in and he goes, well, you lost weight. And I went, that's good. That's the first time in a year and a half. And he goes, yeah, a hundredth of a pound. And I was like, listen, let's take the little victories, right? Amen. Right, but my faith only lasts so long, right? Some of you have seen stuff that, like, it's just the way that it works. Your faith is only as strong as the thing in which you put it. So your faith is pretty darn weak if you put it in anything other than God. Because God's the only one who can hold you. And make no mistake, you are never holding God. Let's, let's put that to bed right now. God is never dependent on you. You're never holding him up. He doesn't need you. He's the one holding you. And if you think you can slip from his grasp, we serve a different God. Because nothing slips from his grasp. When you put your faith in anything else, right? Money, like he talks about here. You can put your faith in your job. I have an incredible family. You can put your faith in your family, in your friends. You can put your faith in your car, in whatever it is. You put your faith in it, it will fail you, right? It will, without a doubt, every time it will fail. 
except for God. So he's saying, woe to the person who puts their faith in something other than God for their salvation. Your works, they'll fail you. You won't get there, right? If this isn't like in ancient Egypt or in ancient Greece when your works were judged and that decided where you went in the afterlife. Your works don't do that for you. Belief in God, but not acceptance of him as your savior, won't do it for you. I have a number of friends who go, yep, there's God. I just don't think I need a savior. And it breaks my heart because they're going to hell. The only thing in which to put your faith is in Christ Jesus alone. That's what we talked about last week, right? Easter, that's the whole kind of the point of Easter, was to give us faith in the law, it will fail you. Faith in Christ is it, done. And he talks about here, right? Your reward is in heaven, not, not here. Your reward's not on earth. Now, some of you might be sitting there going, well, but I am pretty rewarded. I've got a great family, awesome, me too. I do have money, awesome. I've got this, I've got that, that is awesome. I am not saying that God does not bless his children. He does. I am saying, though, that the ultimate blessing doesn't come here. The ultimate blessing comes there. And it's whatever you need to be happy. That's what you get. That's the, the promised hope. When Paul talks about, right, that I run this race, that's what he's talking about. That's the prize he's talking about winning is in heaven, not here. Paul led countless people to Christ. Paul was beaten. Paul was bruised. Paul was blinded. Paul had good and bad things happen to him his whole life. Paul had an unparalleled intelligence in his time. If you don't believe me, read his letters. He was blessed incredibly on this earth. It didn't compare to what he knew he was chasing after, to the race that he was running towards. So James begins his ending of his letter by saying, listen, I've talked a whole bunch about faith and I talked a bunch about wisdom and then I spent some time beating you up, telling you how you're doing it wrong. Let me leave you by begging you and warning you. You must accept Christ. That's it. That's the end. Faith without works is dead. Faith without Christ is worse. That's what he's saying. So let's apply it then to our daily life, our daily walk as best as we can, right? So I've said it multiple times, and I'll say it again right here. Paul, or Paul, excuse me. James is not saying money and possessions are horrible things, right? He's not saying that. He is saying be wary of them. Be wary of their control over you, right? Let me give you an example of how it can have control over you, right? If you're sitting there, and the Holy Spirit tells you, hey, got a 20 in your wallet that you were planning on buying ice cream down at Randall's today. Throw it in the offering plate. Put it, put it, in, the, put it in, in, in the offering plate. And you struggle to put that 20 in the offering plate, that means money has hold over you. Just put it out there. And I'm not pointing fingers because the number of times that I have gone, God, do you really want me to give all of that? Like, my ice cream only costs $4, and I've got two fives and a 10. So can I just put the 10 and the five in? Don't try to bargain with God. He doesn't like that. It doesn't work out anyway, right? But if you struggle, if God says, hey, give, and you go, I don't know, God, money's got a hold over you. Money's got a hold over me. It always has. 
Now, I'm also blessed enough that, and I mentioned it before, my family didn't grow up with money. Still don't have money. And so I don't, I was raised to not look at money and go, wow, I've got to hoard this. When we get money, when I get extra money, it generally goes to somebody else. We're back into the church's plates because I go, cool. God obviously wants me to do something. Let's do it. Because I was raised that way. I'm very blessed in that. But money will always have hold over us. It doesn't mean they're horrible. It does mean you must be wary of money and possessions, of hoarding them and holding on to them so tight. Because that means they are more important than God. And there shouldn't be a single thing, right? We like to rank things. We'll go, well, God's number one and family's number two and money's number three. No, no, throw it all out. God is number one and he is so big there is no two and three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There is nothing else. But let me tell you something awesome. When God is number one, you know what happens? You treat your money the way it's supposed to be treated and used. You treat your family the way they're supposed to be and you prioritize them. When God's number one, everything else falls into place the way it's supposed to be. But either way, that's another sermon for another time. Secondly, beware of what you love. Okay? Let me give you a prime example that happened um, just a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember the exact thing now because I didn't write it down. But you all know I'm a massive sports fan, right? I love my Philadelphia Eagles. I love my Philadelphia Phillies. I tolerate my Flyers because they're horrible, and I tolerate my Sixers, right? My number one sport has always been baseball. It is my first love when it comes to sports. I can remember playing catch when I'm four years old, and I have loved baseball ever since. So we were planning something, and as we were picking the day and the time, my brain went, well, there's a Phillies game on that time. I wonder if I can get us to move it so that I can at least catch a couple innings of the, of the game before I have to go to this. Now, thankfully, the Holy Spirit was there and went, hey, no. And we learned a valuable lesson. But I love baseball. And I very nearly allowed my love of baseball to overrule my love of God. Beware of what you love, whether it's sports, whether it's food, whether it is money and possessions, whether it's your family, whether it's whatever. Beware of what you love taking you away from God. And let me tell you this, your love of things like scripture or worship music or church on Sunday morning can be bigger than your love for God. And if it is, that's just as wrong as your love of money or sports or food or whatever. Sunday morning, you should be here. I'm not trying to be like, oh, just do what you want to. But if you come to church because you go, well, I just I gotta go to church, that's not it. If you read your Bible because you go, wow, I just love this thing, but you're not focused on the one who wrote it, not in the right spot. If you love worship music because you love watching Hillsong and the lights and the smoke and the, the drums and the 18 guitars and stuff like that, I love music. I, when I hear an awesome song, what song were we listening to? Oh, um, um, Mountain Music by Alabama. Oh, play me Mountain Music, right? Well, we heard that song on the radio and Maddie goes, wow, I really love the, the fiddle on that at the end of it. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Not quite as good as The Devil Went Down to Georgia, but pretty solid, right? But the fact of the matter is, we love music. But if our love of music, even if it's a worship song, becomes more than our, our love of 
wanting to worship and wanting to worship the creator, the maker, the savior, we've got it wrong. Beware of what you love because Christ should be your first and only and everything else will fall into place from there. Lastly, and here is, remember I always try to give you a practical thing you can do. So here's the practical thing for you um, for this week, okay? Take out a pen and a piece of paper, a pad of paper, right? My sister made fun of me the other day because we were up at the, up at my, we were all up at my parents' house and we were playing a card game where you need to keep score. And I said, Nathan, will you get us a pad of paper? She goes, who calls it a pad of paper anymore? Apparently I do, but whatever. Right, take out a pen and a, and, a, and a pad of paper. Write down your priorities. In, write them all down and then put them in order. Be honest with yourself. Before you start, spend some time with God and ask him to reveal to you your priorities and what order they are in. And if and when God is not number one on that list, spend some time with him and work to make him number one on your list. You will fail at times. Don't misunderstand me. There will be days when God is number one and there's not anything else and you're on this high and it's awesome and there will be days when God can't crack your top ten. Work to make it so God's number one more and more and more and more and more until you find he's number one all the time. You will fail. You're human. You and I are human. But we'll fail together and we'll lift each other up together. But that's your practical thing for this week. Make your list of priorities. And if and when they're out of sync, spend some time with God to get them back into where they're supposed to be. You'll find that when God is your number one, when you put aside possessions, money, and family, and please don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying not to love your wife or your kids or your husband or your grandkids or your friends or anything like that. I'm not saying not to do that. I'm saying put God number one. And when you do that, it's amazing how everything falls back into place. And you don't have to woe. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to wonder because God's still good and he's in control. Yes, ma'am. Amen. 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 Would you pray with me here this morning? Father, as we, uh, we, we have the beginnings of one of the best days of the year so far. We praise you for it, but help us not to put this day above you. Father, as we look through James here, I thank you that you saw fit to warn us against certain things, but also to encourage us in a way, in the way, right way of doing things, in the right way to go. I pray that you would help each of us to look at our priorities and realize if you are number one, and if you are, to work to keep you there. And if you're not number one, to work to get you there to give our souls, our hearts, our lives, our minds, our beings, all of it in worship of you, right? As Jesus himself said, love the Lord your God. Love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Father, we praise you. Give us all a blessed week. Um, Father, if, nobody, if somebody doesn't have power in here or elsewhere, we ask it's restored today. And we thank you that you give us wisdom and knowledge, and not me, obviously, but the men and women who are out working on it. Um, give them strength and keep them safe as well, Father. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. And amen.